Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hey, Tamar and Mike, this is Anna from Wyoming, and I'm very curious if there are foods that you eat that you know you shouldn't if you want to fight climate change. I often feel guilty about what I do consume just based off of what I can get access to or where I'm at if I'm out of friends or family members or if I just happen to be cooking for myself. And I try to stick to a mostly vegan diet, but I feel like sometimes when I stray away, I feel guilty about harming the planet. So looking forward to hearing from you, and hopefully you can answer my question. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, Mike, you first. (laughs) Well, look, I'm a climate dork, and I do try to do my part. I got solar panels. I got an electric car. But I got to tell you, I love meat. It's delicious. I eat way too much of it. Uh, What I've tried to do is I eat a lot less beef than I used to because beef is really the worst meat that you can eat for the climate. But I'm human. We're all human. And I'm definitely not going to say that I'm perfect about this stuff. You know, I think Anna's doing better than both of us, which is a little embarrassing. Maybe she should come and host the podcast. Yeah, we're not near vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Not even close. And I really admire people who are making decisions like that. I struggle with the thing that I think so many people struggle with, which is that some of the foods that are bad for the climate, mostly meat, but also dairy, are delicious. And I do eat them. I do try and moderate them. I eat very little beef, but I do eat lamb, and I do put cream in my coffee and put yogurt in my muesli, and and I'm not perfect. But, you know, who among us is? And this show is definitely not about perfect. You got to think the idea is to try to be better. And better is better than worse. Better is better than worse. And, you know, it's food. I don't want to lose track of the fact that it's delicious and it's joyful. and, And this is what we share with our families. And there is more to food than just climate impact. But a lot of people care about climate impact. And that's what we're here to try and unpack. Look, the the climate doesn't really, you know, care about how we feel about our food. It just cares about the math. But human beings do care about a lot of other things, about nutrition, you know, about animal welfare, about just the culture of food. And I think we're going to be talking about all those things. We're going to do the math, but we're not going to sap the joy out of your lunch. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So, Climavores. Tamara, you didn't even like the name, right? Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? Was it just because I suggested it? <laughs> that would have been a good reason, but it wasn't the reason. So, I I come to this from 20 plus years in the food trenches and maybe I was scarred by locavores because it's Ooh. this like you see? <laughs> see, even you don't like locavores. And You know, it's this idea that there's this one thing that's way more important than anything else. It's so important, we're going to add vor to it and eat only that. And so, you know, locavores, it brought a lot of local agriculture and local farms to the forefront. And I think that there's a lot of good about that. But there's also downsides to that. And so Climavore felt really dogmatic. It felt like it was saying this is the only thing. What did it say to you? You know, I think to me it said that it had really good search engine optimization potential. <laughs> and uh, and the bosses liked it. So, you know, 
What else was there? Well, that that's what won me over in the end. <laughs> but I mean, look, I think uh, I think we're going to be talking a lot about food and climate, and uh, climavores is a. I think it's a way of signaling, and uh, and people didn't like carbonara. So what can yeah, I tell you? Because I thought of that. <laughs> so, but here's the thing about it: it is signaling, and you know we're talking about food, and food is a really culturally fraught issue. Climate change is a really culturally fraught issue. And so you combine the two and you get exponential fraughtness. Right. I think and it's not it's not a coincidence that when climate deniers want to go after climate activists, they're always accusing them of wanting to ban cheeseburgers, yeah, right? Yeah, t- take, take all your cheeseburgers. Yeah, cause, right, because people like cheeseburgers, and, and meat is it's like part of our culture. It's like, but I do think that concern about climate has entered the mainstream. I don't think it's quite as polarizing as it was maybe five years ago. I think headlines about, you know, changing weather patterns and droughts and how it's affecting places in our backyard, but also halfway around the globe, have sort of made people internalize this idea that for whatever reason, the climate is definitely changing. Um, So I'm hoping that Climavores doesn't turn people off because I I would like this to be a culturally ecumenical show. I want everybody to I mean, let's let's face it, though. I mean, climate is part of the culture war, too, right? I mean, we know that probably people who are listening to us are going to care a little bit about the fact that we are— setting ourselves on fire. Um, that's uh, that's part of why we're here. But it doesn't mean that climate is the way that we all live our lives every day. I mean, it's just, it's an element. It's something to think about. And what we found is that people who even do want to eat better for the climate, they really have no idea what that means. Okay. But when you talk about it, it makes it sound like, so everybody's on board with this agenda. And I don't know that everybody is. I'm not sure that everybody cares about it. And even among those who do care, I think we see the same kind of polarization and schisms that we see on other issues. Take the keto, take, you know, the carnivore diet. Now, obviously, the question of whether beef is good for you for humans is a completely different question from the question of whether beef is good for the planet. But people who are on one side of one of those issues almost invariably line up on the same side on the other issue. So people who think that, you know, meat is the staff of life and we should be eating more of it believe that beef is not nearly as bad for the climate as other people do. And people come to virtual blows on Twitter. And, you know, do we have any prayer of sort of depoliticizing and depolarizing what has become an extremely contentious issue. Nope. Oh, great. All right. (laughs) This is going to be the world's shortest podcast, you know, a half an episode, and we're done. Okay, Mike, you're writing a book about how to feed the world without frying the world. So let's go through some of the basics about where we're headed in the next uh, 20 or so years. What are the big problems that you see coming down the pike? Well, look, we already generate a third of all our 
greenhouse gas emissions from our food system, um, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, a quarter of our emissions come from agriculture, right? Our food doesn't just magically materialize on our shelves. Uh, somebody's growing it and, you know, they're using pesticides and fertilizers and tractors and all kinds of things that are creating carbon emissions. But the big thing they're doing is they're taking up land, uh, right now, if you want to think of the earth, the built environment that we all hang out on is like 1% of it. And the rest of it is agriculture and nature. And the basic problem is that right now we're having too much agriculture and not enough nature. Deforestation is a tenth of our emissions, and that is almost entirely driven by agriculture moving into forests. And as the population grows and we need more food to feed the world, um, that's going to become an even bigger problem. So farmers are going to have to grow the calorie equivalent of 800 Olive Garden breadsticks for every human being alive every year. That's a lot of carbs. You can have mine. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's a, you know, it's a lot. It's like a pepperoni pizza pie for every human being on earth every day, extra, in addition to what we're already creating. And we're going to have to do that without deforesting the Amazon. So it's a real problem, not to mention all the, you know, the cows that are running around burping and farting and creating emissions, uh, manure creates emissions, fertilizer creates emissions. Where our food comes from has a very big impact on the climate that we all depend on. But I, I have to but in here and say, while we're doing that, we also have to give people nutritious foods that they're actually going to eat. We have to ha make sure that people have access to foods that are culturally appropriate. We need to take care of animal welfare issues. We need to make sure that farm workers have decent conditions and appropriate compensation. I think it's super important to keep local agriculture afloat. How do we prioritize? Well, look, everybody's going to have their own priorities. I guess I'm here to stick up for climate as an important one because we are currently on track to deforest another two Indias worth of land by 2050 in order to feed the world. And that would be game over for the climate. And we depend on the climate to keep this place inhabitable. This is the only planet we've got. It's the only one with pizza. We're going to need to take care of it. And it ought to be a priority because if you care about inequality, if you care about the plight of the poor, if you care about people eating nutritious food, a at least tolerable climate is a prerequisite. No, I totally agree. And it's, it's a priority for me too. And I guess one of the reasons I'm here is to just try and make sure all the other things that are important about food don't get lost in the shuffle. Well, and hopefully, as we get deeper into this, we'll be able to talk about some of the no-regret solutions, right? The kind of things that will, not only will it make the climate better, but it will make biodiversity better, and it will help farmers, and it will help eaters, and it will help the poorest of the poor. And it will be delicious. I think Don't forget that. Exactly. And it'll be delicious. I mean, food is food is really important and it's going to have to be cheap and we're, people are going to have to like it and it's going to have to be convenient. But I think we're here to talk about the climate aspect as well, because it's been the forgotten part of our eating experience. So anybody listening to this is 
going to wonder, okay, well, obviously there's all these competing issues and everybody has their own agenda. Why on earth should I listen to these two? (laughs) Because we're so good looking? Is that why they gave us a podcast? Uh, Yeah, that's why we're doing podcasts. (laughs) We have the faces for podcasts. So given that food is so fraught and everybody has an agenda and everybody disputes facts and everybody has different priorities and, you know, down the road in future episodes, we are going to be talking about specific choices. (laughs) I mean, next week we're going to be doing those locavores. And I think the week after that we're doing beef, right? So we're going right in the deep end on two of the the most hot button issues. But I mean, why should anybody listen to us on these issues? Well, tomorrow you know more about food than just about anybody. Uh, I know you've been working on this stuff for a long time. I'm I'm new to the issues. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you got into it and how you came to the climate issue? Oh, it's such a long story. I I've been in food for I don't know, 25 plus years. And I guess I, you know, I made my bones in New York writing about nutrition for women's magazines. And I lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and I wrote about things that other people did. And I wrote things about nutrition that I actually no longer believed to be true. And I got really disillusioned with that because I think that media is basically invested in the idea that it's good to keep people confused because then it keeps them coming back. And my husband and I left New York. We we moved to Cape Cod, and so we left our Upper West Side apartment, and now I live in this little house on two wooded acres. And when we moved, I started looking around and saying, okay, well, what can we do on Cape Cod that we couldn't do in Manhattan? And the answer is all kinds of stuff, including skinny dip after dark. <laughs> but right, that podcast. is neither here nor there. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, I started experimenting with getting food every which way from Sunday, basically. We started with a garden, and I was interested in chickens and foraging, and we live on Cape Cod where there's world-class fishing. And so we, I started this project. You know, I said to Kevin, like, I remember it was like New Year's Day, 2009. Do you think we can eat one food a day that we get firsthand, whether we grow it or fish it or forage it? And Kevin, well, you know Kevin, he's, he's can do, he's wildly supportive of everything that I want to do. And, and he goes, not a chance. <laughs> I'm like, not a chance? Who are you? And what have you done with Kevin? And I had to talk him around. But that started a project where I was sort of knee-deep in the origins of food. You know, when I lived in New York, the thing that I cared about, I did care about animal welfare. And I did like to support our local farmers. And I did go to the farmer's market. But that was about where my concern ended. But as I spent more time procuring food myself, it sort of became natural to say, okay, well, where does the rest of my food come from? And I got really interested in how food is grown and how it's produced. And the counterpoint of big industrial agriculture versus, you know, my backyard chickens. And that led me to, inevitably, the environmental impact. I started really looking at water and air and the erosion of topsoil and things like that. But then as climate was climbing the charts on everybody's, you know, worst fears list, that became an issue too. So I sort of arrived at it 
by getting dirty. And I know that your story is completely different. And I'm going to say that, I, yeah, I've been in food for a million years and you come at it from a different angle. But I kind of think that that's, that's a really good thing because we both bring a different perspective and skill set uh, to know. this. I don't so, know about I, that. Is, is, uh, is ordering takeout not considered foraging? I don't know. Well, it's only foraging after it's in the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is foraging. Exactly. And I'm a, I'm a world-class forager. I guess if you came into climate through food, I more came into food through climate. And I stumbled into the climate, really. I, I, I was a policy dork reporter at the Washington Post, where you now write these great columns. And I decided I was going to write an environmental history of the Everglades, about man and nature and how they destroyed the place and how they were trying to fix it. Um, Two words, by the way, that's a very good book. And I didn't read it until I actually met you, but everyone oh, should read it. That's very kind. And I'm, I'm proud of the book. I, I liked it. You know, it, it moved me to Miami where I met my wife and had my kids and get to play tennis during the winter. I'm very pleased I wrote it. But one thing I realized very shortly after it came out in March 2006, uh, which was a few months before a movie called An Inconvenient Truth came out in May 2006, was that I had completely blew the climate issue. Um, I'd written about an ecosystem that's basically two feet above sea level, and I had barely ad addressed the fact that it might end up underwater. Um, and as a, you know, I was a policy reporter, but I did a lot of environmental work, and I decided I really had to learn about climate and write about climate. It was the biggest issue facing not just our generation, but all future generations. Um, so at the time, becoming a climate reporter really meant becoming an energy reporter. I wrote an energy column for Time Magazine for a while. Um, I wrote a lot about the clean energy revolution that was starting when I wrote a book about the Obama administration. I wrote a lot about wind and solar and LED lighting and electric vehicles and all these incredible transformations that were happening in our economy to make it a slightly greener and climate-friendlier uh, economy. As we mentioned, I got my own solar panels, got an electric car, a Chevy Bolt, and I was writing a magazine story in, I think, 2018 about my own transition into this new green economy. And I was kind of trying to point out how this was really an economic thing. I wasn't some kind of eco-saint. You know, I didn't line dry my laundry. I uh, didn't unplug my computers at night. I still ate meat. And I realized, wait a minute, is eating meat even really bad for the climate? I didn't know. I had been covering climate issues for a decade, and I knew people said that eating meat was bad, and it was always in the, like, 50, 50 things you can do to fix the fix the climate. They would always say you could go vegan, and that sounded really great and, like, something I would never do in a billion years. Um, but I didn't even know if it was true. So I actually called this, uh, you know, a climate analyst who I knew and trusted and said, you know, is, is meat really that bad for the climate? He was like, yeah, duh. <laughs> um, but that was sort of the so beginning of my journey. agree on. <laughs> And of course, as we discussed, it turns out to be a little more complicated than that. Some meats are, you know, worse than others. But really, I think the real aha moment was, huh, you know, if if I don't know anything about food and climate, then probably other people don't too. And I'm not a food expert. I'm a reporter. But I like writing and thinking about things that other people aren't writing and thinking about. And at the time, there was virtually nobody thinking about essentially the, the climate impact of our food in a sort of mainstream way. And hopefully we're going to continue to change that. 
So, I mean, the common thread here is that we both started to care when we learned more. And, you know, I, I think that we are <clears throat> a certain age. Hey, and speak for maybe... yourself. <laughs> I haven't reached your certain age. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just give it a few years, you'll get there. <laughs> and, you know, I think that younger people have been immersed in this, and not that, you know, they all are full-blown Greta Thunbergs, but there are a lot of people who it's just not on the radar of. And so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what makes people make the choices that they make. And when you talk to people and you ask them, do you care about climate? People usually say yes. Um, But then when they go to the grocery store and we see what people actually buy, those concerns aren't reflected in purchases, at least not yet. And so is it possible that simply knowing more will make climate impact sort of climb the charts and, and compete with taste, price, and convenience, which are the three things that consumers really care about. It's a tall order, Mike. It's a tall order. Well, I think so. But I think another area where we can hopefully help is that there are a lot of people who think they're doing right for the climate with their food who don't necessarily know. It's a space like so many in our current society that's a lot of it is vibes-based, a lot of it is ideology-based. There's a feeling that if food is more natural, if it's uh, if it's more organic, if it's local, if you buy it at the farmer's market, if it's colorful, people have all kinds of ideas about what makes good food. Obviously, a few years ago, I was ignorant about these issues. I knew nothing. As a policy dork, when I've written about transportation or infrastructure or finance or just about any issue that I've covered in God knows how many years of being a reporter, you know, I try to cover stuff that's slightly complex. But the idea is that smart people can understand it. They just don't know about it because people are busy. They have their lives. It's not their job to know about food and climate. It is now our job. (laughs) So I think, you know, hopefully we can provide a little bit of information for people who are interested in the issue and maybe would like to learn a little bit more and have some fun and entertainment while learning about it. And there is one part of it that we haven't talked about yet, which is that a lot of climate friendliness when it comes to food doesn't come down to which choices individuals make. It comes down to how we produce those foods. And I know I said, you know, it's totally different from energy because it's a pull system and not a push system. But it's certainly true that some of the practices that go into growing the food that we eat can mitigate some of the effects and can be virtually transparent to the end user. So it isn't all on eaters. There's a lot of stuff that can go on behind the scenes. And those are things we're going to want to talk about too. I agree with that. And this is a little bit of a 
a touchy issue for me because there's been this, there has been this move in the climate movement to sort of say like, hey, we're not here to tell you about your choices. Your choices don't matter. These are really systemic yes. issues. It's corporate. It's the government. Yes. You know, there's there's that famous statistic that 100 corporations produce two thirds of, of our emissions. Your tone is then, again telling me that you don't think much of that argument. Yeah, because it's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, first of all, those are all fossil fuel companies that that they're talking about. And as we've discussed, you know, fossil fuels are not, in fact, 100% of emissions. But those fossil fuel companies, you know, whatever badnesses they are guilty of, they are not forcing anybody to drive their Ford Explorer to the mall. Right. Our choices matter too. If we think that climate is a crisis, and it really is, then I think we have to treat it like a crisis. And that does not include saying, like, it's a crisis for other people's emissions. It's a crisis for your emissions, too. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to be perfect. I still fly too much. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I eat meat. But we can try to do better. And we can at least have the knowledge of what better is, or at least we can grapple with what better is. I think that's a you know, that's going to have some value for some people. I, I hope so. And, you know, what you said up top, that better is better than worse, is is really, I think, what this is about. Food is all trade-offs all the time. There's no yes. one food that's going to be ideal for environment, for animal welfare, for farm workers, except lentils. Wait a minute, there lentils, is maybe one, right? <laughs> Tamar loves lentils. But other yeah, than This that, will be a recurring theme. After... <laughs> Lentils, it, it it goes downhill fast. This is about trade-offs. And, you know, we're going to start with our own. I eat a lot of fish that I catch myself with no or very little bycatch and without destroying the ecosystem and making sure that the fisheries that I fish from, uh, uh, we fish according to the rules. But I do it in my boat with a diesel engine, which I pull with a truck that has another diesel engine. And so there's no perfect answer, but what there are are well-informed answers. And I think that's, that's what we're here for. That's right. We want to know what you're thinking. The next two episodes, which are already in the feed, are tackling local food and beef, two of the real hot buttons. But we want to know what else is on your list, and we want the hard questions, because those are the interesting ones. Call us. We're at 508-377-3449. And I'm going to say it again because you have to write it down. 508-377-3449. And I know you hate the phone. I hate the phone too. But this is an audio show and we want your actual voice to put on the air. You can drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com, and we will figure out a way to get it into an upcoming episode. You can ask us really about anything, whether it's organic food, processed food, regenerative agriculture, industrial agriculture, meat, fake meat. We want your questions. We realize, like, it's a lot of us. So we need less of us and more of you. Although I, I don't think less of us should be such a strong selling point. Do we have a better one? Uh, not yet. <laughs> Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. The show is hosted by us, Tamar Haspel and Michael Grunwald. Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey are our executive producers. 
Ann Bailey is senior editor, and Cecily Mesa-Martinez is managing producer. Dalvin Abawaje is associate producer, Greg Vilfrank is our engineer, and Sean Marquin composed our theme music. And Mike, we gotta up our credits game because Car Talk did it way better. <laughs> the best way you can spread the word is by giving us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Send us your thoughts on social media too. We're at Climavores Pod, or you can reach us individually at Tamar Haspel and at Mike Grunwald. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, please send them a link. Our second episode is already in your feed. It's all about eating local and all that implies. And we'll be back next week with a fresh show. Bye.